Do we still believe in miracles? It's a good question, I think. I looked up the definition of miracle in uh, Webster's Dictionary. An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. An extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. I think we've had trouble with that notion in the West for quite some time. I just finished looking at a a great book um, by uh, a fellow named Craig S. Keener. It's basically a thesis. It's called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. It's two big, thick volumes. Hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of footnotes. And Keener explores the whole notion of miracles. And how, the, first the historical context in the time of Jesus, pre-Jesus in the time of the Old Testament, the Hebrew traditions of miracles. It goes all the way back to the beginning, the stories of miracles. And even the gospel accounts aren't the first accounts of miracles in the life of Jesus. The, the letters of Paul are actually older than the four gospels. And he talks about the miracles, including the miracle of his own conversion. Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian in the time of Jesus, talks about Jesus being a miracle worker. But sometime about 300 years ago, the Enlightenment comes to Europe. And the notion of the miracle is challenged. And the Enlightenment basically takes the position that the universe is governed by natural law. So theologians for the next 300 years tried to rationalize the miracle of Christ and his miracles, the miracle of the Son of God dying on a cross and then rising from the dead, the miracles that are rampant through the stories of the gospel, and how to rationalize them with this notion of natural law. And so you get um, rationalizations that explain away the miraculousness of the miracles. The feeding of the 5,000, the people just shared their lunches. Uh, It was psychosomatic. People wanted to be healed, and so they were healed. But, and so the Western world has really suffered under this, this notion that it came about through the Enlightenment. But the Western world, Europe, North America, Australia, they're not the whole world. It then talks about the majority world. The majority world being Africa, Asia, South, and La- South America, Latin America, those are the contexts where Christianity has been growing rapidly over the last 30 years. And in that context, in that growth, miracles happen all the time. It's part of the whole growth experience. And then he proceeds to document hundreds and hundreds of cases 
in all these different contexts, including the Western world, of miracles. It's pretty profound. I really liked that book. I haven't finished reading it. I had to give it back to, to Rob, who now Alex is going to be using it for his messages, and then David's going to be using it for his. And there's a really profound statement that Keener harvests and puts in there by a, a philosopher from Oxford University named Richard Swinburne. And this is the statement. If there is no God, then the laws of nature are the ultimate determinants of what happens. But if there is a God, then whether and for how long and under what circumstances laws of nature operate depends on God. God can change the rules. He's the designer. The truth of the matter is the Gospels don't work without the miracles. The miracles are what draws the people to Jesus. And they become the vehicle uh, for his whole ministry. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand the, the things that you have given us. The nature of miracle and the miracles that we will talk about today. I ask you to send your Holy Spirit to move amongst us, to give me the proper words to say, and to relay your message to the people both here in this room and online. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to tell you about two miracles today. The first miracle that I'll be going into is one that happened to me. In 1970, in the winter of 1970, I had just turned 18. And I felt that I need, if I was going to have an adventure, that was the year to get the adventure. That summer, I wanted a summer job that would be something different, something really exciting for me. And my mom had told us about when she was young, she had worked in a resort. And the resort sounded like a lot of fun. And uh, so I thought, I'll, I'm going to apply to work at a resort. Sue Black knows where I'm, where I'm going to talk because she worked there too. Not at the same time as me. But so the only resort I knew was a, a place called Canadian Keswick Conferences, which was a Christian resort in the Muskoka Lakes in northern Ontario. So I sent off a letter applying for a job. And I got a response very quickly. They would be willing to hire me, but they had some very strict conditions. This is 1970. Every boy had long hair. I had a mustache as well as long hair. And one of the things in their letter was short hair. No facial hair. And oh yeah, on top of that, incredibly low pay. Um, the pay they would be offering was uh, $80 a month for two and a half months. Now that seems like a very little in today's dollars. And I'll tell you, in 1970, it was very little in 1970 dollars. The big pay they were paying you was room and board. So you got room and board. 
So I was discouraged by the, the, the adventure was all washed up in that idea. So I tossed the letter aside and forgot about it for a bit. And then a few weeks later, I'm lying in bed. The whole house is in bed. My mom and dad are in bed. My brother's in bed in his room. House is in darkness. And suddenly I have this, this sense that that job is really important, that I'm missing some real opportunity that, as bizarre as it may seem, that God wants me to take that job. So I call out in the middle of the night. Only, the, only an 18-year-old could do this. Call out to my mother. Mom, do we still have that letter? And she, she says, yes, it's in a pile down in the kitchen. So the next morning, I wrote my reply. I accepted their conditions, sent it off, and I get the job. So that was the beginning of that adventure. I go off to that, that job, and I get there. And it's this beautiful resort. There's a hotel on a cliff and overlooking Lake Rosso in the Muskoka Lakes. And there's smaller lodge buildings and cabins set back into the, into the woods. It's a beautiful sight. They put me to work right away. They've hired about 80 young people, most of them high school students, some university students. I'm with the, the guys, and the guys are all bunked in the boathouse, the second story of the boathouse. And, you know, there's people for, there's kids for grounds crews, there's servers, there's kitchen chore helpers, there's chambermaids, uh, and we all, a lot of us come from Christian backgrounds. It's the beginning of that adventure. Let's leave that for now. Let's go to the other miracle. Let's go to the book of John, chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in his mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down, and about 5,000 men were there. And Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
After the people saw the sign, Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the context of this is of this story is set near the north end of the, of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a large freshwater lake. And this, this story that I just read from the book of John is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. All of the stories are very similar. There are small details that differ from one to the other, but they're all there. That's the only miracle other than the resurrection that appears in all four Gospels. That's pretty interesting. Some of the details that are different is that uh, Mark and Matthew both tell us that John the Baptist had just been executed. And word of this had come to Jesus. So there's a sense of grief and a sense of trepidation, because is Herod going to come after Jesus next? In a sense that there's a turning point, something next, what's going to happen next? And then Mark and Luke both tell us that the 12 had just returned from their missionary journey. So earlier, Jesus had taken the 12 disciples, had given them a command to go out two by two, not as 12, not as singles, but two by two, and sent them out on a missionary journey to, to engage, empowered them to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to, to give the good news. And they were to take nothing with them, not extra clothes, not extra food, not extra money, just the bare minimum, so that they would have to depend on him, on them, on God. And so they have just returned from this, and it was terribly successful. People are now coming to them all the time, wanting to be healed. The, they, they, they are so busy that they, they have no time to even eat. And then John tells us that the Passover is near, the Passover festival. Passover was the Jew, Jewish, celebrates the Jewish uh, historical event of the liberation of the Hebrew people from Egyptian bondage and how Moses with God leads them across the water, the Red Sea, into the wilderness and begins their, their exodus process, being in a wild place. So that's the context of the story. And it's, we don't really know where the spot is on, on the Sea of Galilee where they head to. But it's believed it's somewhere to the west of Bethsaida. Somehow, and then so one morning Jesus says, let's take a break. Let's get in the boat. Let's go to a quiet place far away from everybody. And it's the notion is it's an opportunity for a retreat. And so they set sail in the boat, and somehow people learn where they're going. 
Maybe one of the disciples let it slip as to what the destination was. This well-known wilderness peninsula that projects out into the lake. Maybe, maybe people saw the boat tacking back and forth against a headwind trying to make this landfall. And they figured out where they were going. Maybe there was a, it was a local tradition to go to this place uh, for retreats. And other people had done it. Somehow they figure it out. So the disciples and Jesus sail their boat up the lake to this wild country. And they said, they pull the boat up on the beach, secure it, and then it's all grassy slopes, and there's a ridge, and they head up to the ridge. And there they sit down. And no sooner have they sat down than they start to see people coming. Not large crowds, it's a trickle. Over here, off in the distance, they can see three, four, maybe five people working their way along a trail through the, through the open grassland. And then there's over on the other side, there will be another group, another small group of three or four people. And every time they see these little groups, there's always one that seems to be being helped along by the others. And so they watch. And the people start to gather below this little ridge where Jesus and the disciples are sitting. It doesn't say this. I'm imagining this. But I'm trying to picture in the context of what happened. At some point, Jesus gets up and goes down to the people and asks them what they need, what they want. It's healing they want, of course. Healing, and he doesn't disappoint. And so he starts to move amongst the people healing the sick and the crippled, the blind, all the different ailments that people have. These are people who have nothing, so they have come here on this one chance, this one hope. And no one leaves. It's such a basic place. Water, beach, grassy slopes. No town. No no city. There's a sense that something is happening. And the crowd grows and grows and grows, and soon there are thousands of people there, and no one leaves, and there's the healings continue. I imagine that the disciples get involved. They've just come back, actually, you know, from their mission trip. They've learned how to, do, to, to demonstrate their faith, They're working now with Jesus as part of the healing ministry. And so the people come. I can imagine that they sit on the grass and as there's prayers going on and people watch as more miracles happen. And then somewhere a, a cantor is amongst the crowd and starts to sing a psalm. And everybody knows the psalm and so others start to sing along with it. And so this grows, this, this, this phenomenal experience grows. And no one leaves. And then late in the afternoon, Jesus gathers the 12, and he looks at all the 12 men standing in front of him, and he says to himself, are they ready? I imagine he says that. 
And so then he asks that question of Philip. So where should we get bread to feed these people? And Philip gives that answer about, oh, Lord, it would take a year's salary just to buy enough food for one bite for each of them. The question's rhetorical. There's, there's no way they could get out and get enough food and come back. They have nothing to get the food with. It's too long. It's too far away. And then Andrew turns. He says, well, there is this boy, and he has five small barley loaves and two dried fish. But what is that for so many? Why does he say that? Why does Andrew raise that useless piece of information? What good is five little loaves of bread? The barley loaves are the poorest quality bread. And the dried fish are very, this is a meager, meager amount of food. There's thousands of people here. Why does he say that? I think that Andrew expects something to happen. He knows, he sees the context. Passover, the wilderness location. They've just returned from their mission trip. They've seen amazing things that God can do, not just with Jesus, but with them as well, and how he's trained them to help him in this ministry. So he's putting it back to Jesus. Jesus says, well, first he looks at them again and wonders if they're ready. So then he tells the 12 disciples to go and have the people sit on the grass in groups of 50 or 100. I imagine the disciples don't have any questions. They just go and do it. They immediately respond. They go out and they, they put the crowd down into these small groups, into these groups of 50 and 100. And it says that there were 5,000 men. Some of, the, some of the stories say not including women and children. So it's easily to imagine that there were easily twice that number. Maybe 10, maybe more. 10,000 people. This expectancy is everybody sits and waits. A lesson's coming. So back to Gord's miracle. So Keswick wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So I, I got a job as a, I was a kitchen chore boy. I would every, I worked seven days a week for my $80 a month. And uh, I worked seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sundays was a big day at Keswick because they had a church service and people who weren't even staying there would come to the church service. So there might be for lunch, 500 people for lunch. They'd do two sittings. So people working in the kitchen were really busy. And um, we, you know, we weren't, I couldn't go to the church service because I had to work. And, but they piped the church service into the kitchen so we could hear it and we wouldn't miss anything. And one of the most disillusioning things was I would hear the director every Sunday, the guy who ran the facility, who would do the prayer for the offering just before the offering was collected. And it was always the same prayer. 
And it all, he always broke down at the same spot. And it, once you got, knew that this trick was coming, it was very disillusioning. And I don't know, I just didn't, there's nothing happening here. And I've been here now for three, four weeks, and I had started to read my Bible. I had not done that before as a kid, but now I started reading it every day. And it, it, it didn't really seem to help. And I, I wasn't really getting anywhere. And I've, I've, one day, I just I prayed. I prayed this really basic kid prayer. I said, God, I thought you wanted me to come here. But I, I don't know. Nothing's happening. And I, 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 I can't take it much longer. I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm homesick. It's not what I thought it was going to be. And, and uh, you better make something happen sooner. I got to leave. So that was my prayer. Three hundred miles away, the next morning, my mom and my brother and my dad are at the breakfast table, and my mom has been ruminating over something. Something has been eating at her since late in the night, and she decides to act. She says, let's go see Gord. Let's go see him today. So they pile in the car. My dad was a pastor. It's the middle of the week. He had some time off. So they drive to Keswick. Around noon, I'm in the kitchen. Somebody says, Gord, there's some people here to see you. They're outside. Just look out the window. And I look out the window. And there are my mom and dad and my brother. And they're waving to me. And I'm surprised by joy. My world changed that, that day because the prayer that I offered without any expectation that anything would happen had been answered instantly. So Jesus takes the five loaves. The people are all sitting on the side of the hill Everybody's staring at him. It's quiet. The disciples are over here waiting. He takes the five loaves and he holds them up in his hands like this and he prays. And he blesses God, which is the Jewish tradition, blesses God and thanks him for his bounty. And then he takes the five loaves after he's finished that prayer And he shows the five loaves to the crowd, and then he breaks the five loaves into little bits and pieces, and they drop into a basket at his feet. And he takes the fish and does the same thing. The crowd's still watching. Bends down, picks up the basket, and moves out towards the nearest people. It's just a little basket. And he approaches the first person and invites them to take as much as they want. And then the next, and then the next, and then the next. First 10 people, then 20 people, then 30 people. Around about, probably about the 40th person being fed from this little basket, a murmur starts to go up from the crowd. 
They realize that something is happening. And he continues to go around serving from this small basket. The 12, I imagine the 12 come forward at this time to help him. They bring other baskets that they found someplace. And he shares the contents of his basket with their baskets. And so they all are moving through this whole crowd of up to 10,000 people. Within an hour, everybody's been fed. The crowd is now ecstatic. And the disciples, Jesus sends the disciples out to collect the leftovers in their 12 baskets. And they go and they come back with 12 full baskets. But while all this is going on, people start to call out, maybe someone over here, it's the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to come. It's supposed to be revealed at Passover time. It's the Messiah. And then someone else says, crown him, crown him. And a chant goes up from across the whole crowd. Crown him, crown him. But somehow, while all this is going on, Jesus has disappeared. He's left the party. Some would say that my little miracle was just a coincidence. You know, it's just your, your mom... It's just a coincidence that your mom thought she should come and see you. She probably missed you. I don't know if it was a coincidence. It's an awfully powerful coincidence. I can tell you that that changed my life. And I would not be standing here today if it wasn't for that that event. Following that event, I started to more seriously read my Bible. Starting to understand what it was that I was reading. I, I discovered that there was a small group that met at the top of a tower. There was a tower, an observation tower made out of big logs that was up on a hill overlooking the whole um, campus of, of Keswick and the lake. And there was the, the guy who led this small group was the son of the director who I was so disillusioned with. And this guy, David, would, we would go up there on Wednesday nights and we would sit on the top of this tower. There might be 12, 15 of us. And it was dark, and you'd look up at the stars, and he would play his guitar, and we would sing Christian songs. And then we would pray in conversational prayers, and we would, or share testimony about what, what God had done in our lives this week. We would pray for friends who were struggling, who were down in the boathouse or in the girls' dorm. Or, uh, and, and then the next week we would hear how those prayers had been answered. That day, that event, changed my idea of God from an abstract concept to a real, real, real person who was active in your life. That was the change. That was the difference. And it was life-changing for me. The next day, Jesus and the disciples are in Capernaum. And some of the people have, who were at the feeding of the 5,000 the day before have found them and come, come to talk to them. And now they're in a city or a town. And, you know, it's not the wilderness. It's not the, the water and grass and the, the sense of, of the exodus. It's, there's the notion of God providing manna 
uh, to the people like he did to the, the Israelites out in the wilderness. That was yesterday. Today, today's different. And so they're, they're talking to Jesus about what it all means. And he says, tells them, I am the bread of heaven. And that God has sent me. And he tells, he tries to explain to them the whole, the whole idea of the kingdom of heaven is about. And then some of them say, wait a minute. Isn't this guy the carpenter's son from Nazareth? Give me a break. He's not. I I can't buy this bread of heaven stuff. And so the glory of the day before, all the people leave. Except these 12 guys. There they are standing there with him. There was a big crowd. All the crowd is bled away, but the 12 guys are still standing there looking at them. And so Jesus says to them, what about you? Are you going to go? And there's silence for a moment. Peter speaks for the whole group. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of of eternal life, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. I think all the miracles, whether we're talking about the miracles in the Gospels or the Old Testaments, or the miracles that happen today everywhere, all have a point. They're not just about healing somebody. They have multiple points. And I think the purpose of that miracle was those 12 men. Because the time was coming when they would be the ones carrying the message to the world. And that time was coming soon. Go back to that statement from from, uh, the Oxford philosopher, If there is no God, then the laws of nature are the ultimate determinants of what happens. But if there is a God, then whether and for how long and under what circumstances laws of nature operate depends on God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story this powerful story that demonstrated not only your love, but what your ministry was about. About, and what our ministry is about, that we operate from nothing except faith. You sent the 12 out with nothing. You gathered 10,000 people together on a hillside by the lake and fed them from essentially nothing. The story of the children of Israel out in the wilderness, led by Moses, unused to freedom, have no home, they get hungry, you fed them with manna they found in the grass, fed with nothing. You have given us everything we need 
And we need to realize that we have the power that you've given us, that we are not helpless. We ask you to open our hearts and our minds to your message and take us to our places of our work, to our families, to our neighborhood, and help us to put it into action. In Jesus' name, amen.